0: Good morning and happy Thanksgiving. My name is Justin Sitzma, and I'm on the pastoral staff here at Courtright. And we are inching toward the finish line on our Ephesians series uh, today as we begin the final chapter. Uh, We're way too much. But maybe as we begin, we can try to imagine a world where everything is in 100% perfect order. And that might be hard to imagine in the year of our Lord 2020, but we can try our best. Imagine a world where a dog always, always listens to its owner, where they don't counter surf and get pancreatitis, netting you a $1,200 vet bill, which is a real thing. That (laughs) Imagine a world where cats aren't standoffish but are actually obedient, affectionate creatures. Imagine a world where you could will even inanimate objects under your authority so that when your car or your TV or your refrigerator breaks down, you just tell it to work and it starts to work. Imagine a world where the young unflinchingly respect their elders, a world where spouses never quarrel because the wife always submits to the husband, who is always correct, by the way. Uh, a world where children are perfectly obedient, where they're seen and not heard, and a world where low-wage workers always are, are respecting and obeying their employee employers, no matter how harsh they are. I'm obviously being a little hyperbolic with some of these examples, but the last few are a part of something called the Greco-Roman household codes. This was the Roman ideal for how a household was to be run. Um, In a way, they were kind of a microcosm, a small picture of how the world actually ought to work with order, hierarchy, and patriarchy. This is kind of a picture of what we would call the Pater familius, this autocratic leader of the home. And numerous times in scripture, three times to my count, um, Paul and another, at another point, Peter use these three examples together. Um, these f- first-century household norms, that wives are to be subservient to their husbands, children are to be subservient to their fathers, and slaves are to be subservient to their masters. So It's clear that Paul and Peter are speaking into the culture in which they lived in. But what's remarkable about what Paul does in our passage today, as we'll find, is that he does an incredible job at subverting those norms. However, as we get into the latter portion of the passage, there are still some difficulties and some questions. This is a challenging text for our modern ears today, and I really look forward to uh, working through it and wrestling through it with you. But before we do that, would you pray with me as we begin? Lord, would you open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit? That as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, that may, we may hear with joy and thanksgiving what you say, what are you saying to us today? Amen. So Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. I'll be reading from the New International Version. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. I'm saying that very slowly and clearly. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that, it, that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Just for the people at home to hear, right? So, so this is really a continuation of, of last week. Paul outlines the household code of wives wives submitting to husbands and then subverts a mutual submission component to all this. And as well, he says, he creates a very tall order for husbands. He says, husbands, love your wives like, like Christ loves the church. He creates a picture of how the Christian family and the church ought to work, that above all, we value sacrificial love mirroring Jesus in this way. So now, Paul addresses the two other household relationships that were most common in this, in this Roman culture, father and child, or parent and child, and master and slave. So let's first turn to the easier of the two, um, the, uh, the relationship of parents and child. Going any further, I think it's important that we need to address that this does not represent all family situations. That some listeners here, whether online or in person, you have a deceased father, or maybe you never knew or had a relationship with your biological family. Some of you have very complicated family situations. And I want to honor you and respect you this morning by saying that you are not excluded from these conversations. Family takes on many forms. Church family, adoptive. I even know some mentoring relationships where it truly looks like, uh, you know, there is a father, a kind of a spiritual father and child relationship or a spiritual mother and child relationship. And this is beautiful and good and all a part of being the family of God. All of these relationships could be encompassed in this conversation. Even think, for instance, I know that we, it's been a long time since we've been able to have like a baptism service of any kind, but just imagine those baptismal vows that we as a church family make uh, when someone is baptized. It's not just the biological family that are called to spiritually form that child. There is a call out to the people that are, will you support this child and this family? And the answer is always, of course, yes, we will. I'm picturing here a holistic view of family that goes beyond bloodlines, even if that wasn't specifically Paul's intention. It's also worth noting that this is not excluding mothers, specifically in verse 4 where it mentions fathers. It's not excluding mothers for any other reason other than, that the, fact, other than the fact that this passage is kind of following this, um, this threefold thing of, of uh, husbands, fathers, Masters, So it's kind of working within that framework, but then works around it in some really beautiful and profound ways, where this is just recognizing that in the Roman context, the pater familius was the man of the house with unilateral authority, and I'm not saying that as it's a good thing. As well, it's actually shocking that Paul even addresses uh, these different subservient parties. I use that term loosely. That he speaks to wives, and he speaks to children, and he speaks to slaves. The norm was that you would just speak to the man of the house. This reveals to us, and this is important for us today, that Paul is posturing the Christian home as distinct and different from the culture in which we find ourselves. In this case, it was the Roman home. But today, the Christian home ought to look distinctly different than the world around us. And you see this as he addresses children, starts off with them and calls them to obey their parents, calling back to one of the Ten Commandments. The first commandment with a promise, he says, and this is Exodus 20, verse 12, which says in the original Hebrew Bible, it says, Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And and Paul kind of plays with that translation a little bit because contextually the Ten Commandments were written as they were kind of preparing to enter into the promised land. And so they're talking about it with that in view, but it had not happened yet. And so Paul kind of changes it to say, so that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Now, most commentators don't really think that literally means that you're going to live to be 95 or 100 years old just because you've honored or obeyed your parents. Um, What it more rightly expresses is the vitality of the family unit, that you enjoy your life uh, when you are enjoying good family relationships. And that life extends to future generations. And that, you know, I know it's a bit tricky with Thanksgiving with this weekend, but Thanksgiving is often a beautiful picture of that where you see this big table and there are, you know, I I had a very small dinner last night with my mom and dad and my grandmother and grandfather and my daughter. Uh, My wife, Lindsay, was at a wedding and there was four generations Present, just right there with those six people at the table, and we're serving one another and helping each other out. That's kind of a picture that we're seeing here. On the other hand, you may wish for a shorter life if you have a miserable family relationship. And I don't say that glibly. I just mean that to say that life is difficult to live when we are in constant tension with one another. So children are called to obey their and honor authority even when they disagree. And then it calls specifically to fathers, because I guess fathers are maybe a little worse at this than mothers, I don't know, um, to not exasperate their children. Um, That word exasperate could be stated as to provoke anger. You're provoking anger in that child. And the picture here is that of someone who is demanding obedience without question. Someone who kind of snaps on the fly. Someone who can't handle their child questioning them. Paul is saying, don't be that parent who has to demand and remind their children or the authority figure, because it's often a sign when you have to kind of call out that, hey, I'm the authority figure, that kind of means you've lost it a little bit. Again, this was very subversive of Paul. The, the, The paterfamilias didn't owe honor or sacrificial love to that of the wife or children. But this is what Paul calls us to. He shows us a better way. He shows us that the way, he shows us in some way, the way to the heart of God, the Father. A love that does not coerce or demand. The burden lies not on the child here, but on the parent. Yes, the children are called to obey and honor, but the parent is called to help that child flourish. Now, for some that are hearing this this morning, this might be an ideal. You hear it and you think, this is just totally unattainable for me. This is not possible for me. Maybe your family ties are too strained. That your parents, uh, the parents have wounded too much. The child has gone too far astray. That in your view or your experience, it's just simply not salvageable. To you, I want to say this morning, that while we do believe in a God that does and can work in powerful and miraculous ways, we do believe that it's possible that God can at some point restore a broken relationship, we also recognize full well that sometimes where there has been neglect, where there's been abuse, where there's been addiction, sometimes that will result in the permanent boundary line being drawn. And I want to say to you this morning that that is okay this side of heaven, unfortunately, not all relationships can and will be restored. But at the heart of this text is seeing the other person as an image-bearing human. Because you see, in Roman culture, wives and children and slaves were seen ultimately more as property than human beings. But we know better, don't we? We know better. We know that inside each person, each living being is the image of the invisible God. Therefore, we honor one another out of that theological truth. This is something that we kind of take for granted in our culture. We are very big on seeing one another's intrinsic value, but this has historically, as we're going to see in a moment, this has historically not always been the case. The Judeo-Christian vision that we call Imago Dei, being made in the image of God, has been massively influential in seeing one another as having value simply by existing. And this is really a good transition into the next portion of our passage. So this is where we get into the difficult stuff. Are you guys ready? Sure, sure, you're like, okay, what, where are we going here? So keeping in mind that Paul is elevating the status of children and calling the one in authority to a higher standard, he does the same here in the slave and master relationship. By calling Christian slaves to obey their masters in the same way that they would serve and obey Jesus, he then calls for the masters to do the very same. This was un heard of. This was a shocking admonition for slave owners. Paul's language suggests equality. That that, that just didn't happen. It was not a thing. Paul was, in some ways, very forward-thinking. We can recognize Paul's radical and subversive thinking on this subject while also having some good, good and worthwhile questions. Slavery was and continues to be a system that denigrates and dehumanizes people around the world. And the common question, a very common question that skeptics and atheists ask is if God was truly a God of love and a God of justice, why not abolish the system altogether? Why doesn't Paul speak out against the system itself? These are really good and really right questions. And whether you yourself are asking these questions or whether you know someone that's asking these questions, it's really good to think on this. I also recognize that these questions are very modern. Um, in the 21st century, we have the ability, we kind of look back on history and say, what were they thinking, right? They, we look back on, on everything, and like, even up to like 50 years ago with like the Civil Rights Movement, we're like, what were they thinking, right? Um, but reality is always more challenging and nuanced than that. We have a unique vantage point. And there's also a reading lens that we have to be aware of that it's difficult to hear the word slavery without envisioning our most recent exposure to it, the enslavement of Africans that were brought to the Americas. Now, before we get to kind of any practical implications for this text, I want to broaden our, for just a few moments, I want to broaden our understanding, which in a way is very practical because it gives us information for how maybe you're here and you're kind of thinking, okay, how does this work in the Bible? Or maybe you know people. Um, It's a great way to kind of challenge our assumptions on some of these things. I want to just say also that I'm still learning in all this. I am not an authority on this subject and I'm learning from many people that are wiser than I, especially those. Uh, I have some wonderful black friends that have been teaching me and I've been learning from them and, and I don't have this altogether, but I'm, I'm learning and growing as I go along here. So, I want to first say that no system of slavery is a good system. this shouldn't be controversial, but shockingly, I hang out on Twitter and you'd be surprised at some of the things that Christians say. I believe that the Bible is clear from beginning to end, that freedom and not slavery is an overarching theme across the scriptures. Freedom from sin, freedom in Christ, etc. And slavery, slavery is the exact antithesis of freedom. Slavery did not exist in a pre-fallen world. And slavery will not exist in the new creation. The main event, when you read through the Old Testament, the main event that is referenced over and over and over again in in the Hebrew Bible is the Israelites' exodus from slavery in Egypt. There are Jewish laws that they write about later on that prevent permanent slavery and from encouraging, and they encourage the treatment of slaves to be equitable. And they know how they were treated, so they kind of say, hey, you remember what it was like, so don't do that again. That's the posture that God takes on. In the New Testament, Paul makes this radical claim in Galatians. He says, there's neither male nor female, slave nor free, but we are one in Christ Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul encourages, he actively encourages slaves, if you can get free, get free, do it. In first 1 1, 10 and I never noticed this until I was reading through this week, and I don't know how I never noticed it, but I just never did. In First Timothy 1 verse 10, he denounces slave traders, specifically, as people contrary to sound doctrine. He literally calls slave traders out for being in theological error. It's pretty intense. In Paul's letter to Philemon, possibly the greatest uh, advocacy for uh, the anti-slavery movements. He shares about an escaped slave named Onesimus and how he came to faith in Jesus. And he calls Philemon to receive back Onesimus no longer as a slave, but what? As a brother in Christ. The arc of scripture bends toward freedom. Freedom. It gives us everything we need to confidently say, God abhors slavery, and we should too. And yet, the scriptures, sadly, have been used and abused. And some difficult passages, including the one that we read from this morning, have been thrown around to question this claim. Even worse, Christians across the centuries have used certain verses to literally rape Pillage and destroy black and brown lives, and as they ship them across the Atlantic Ocean, the transatlantic slave trade was an unspeakable evil that still lingers to this day. When you think about it in the the overall spectrum of history, it was barely 150 years ago since it was abolished. There are people still alive today that have parents or grandparents that were enslaved and they could tell you the horror stories. They could tell you just the absolute wild things that occurred while under slavery This passage in Ephesians in particular, as well as in 1 Timothy 6 and 1 Peter chapter 2, became sore spots for slaves because people lorded these passages over them. And we also, to kind of compound it even further, we also wrestle with this tension that Paul, throughout a number of his letters, self-identifies as a slave, as a slave to Christ. And in some sense, he calls us to that same identity. Somehow, he sees indebtedness and servitude toward Jesus as this willful slavery, in a way. It's a bit of a wild metaphor, and, and I, but I think it makes sense for Paul, in a way, who was in and out of prison and, and received a lot of, of persecution under his time as, uh, as, a, as a minister of the gospel. Now, it's a good moment to say that there were some differences when you look in kind of Roman slavery and the slavery that comes to our mind, um, which is chattel slavery or the transatlantic slave trade. And I want to just highlight some of those for just a moment. Um, And while also keeping in mind that while there are differences, these differences only matter to a minute extent because God is always against the dehumanization and the ownership of another person. Amen? Amen. In the Roman world, somewhere around 40% of the entire population was enslaved in some form or another. This usually took on the form of debt slavery. You had debts you couldn't pay, so that you would so become enslaved to a debtor. Some people have compared this um, to kind of a low-level employee-employer relationship. But I, I struggle with that a little bit, just simply from the perspective that that would mean that if I am in debt to someone and I can't pay back that debt, then all of a sudden I am that person's property and I have to keep working until that debt is paid off. There's no freedom for me to go and find a better paying job so that I can pay off the debt quicker. It's an unjust system. And we have unjust systems today as well. You know, we have people that are struggling and making, barely making ends meet, working three minimum wage jobs, and they still can't afford the cost of living or support their family. Uh, But it's, again, it's just not quite the same. It is still difficult. It is still challenging, but it's not the same. Slavery in the Roman world was more class-based, and so it wasn't as racially based. It wasn't like they targeted particular ethnic groups. It was more about class and, uh, and the kind of the wealth gap. The life expectancy for slaves was far lower than anyone else because they would be beaten and sometimes killed if they ran away or were disobedient. The work was grueling and undignified. It was different, but it was equally wrong. And the only way you really lucked out was with a benevolent master. But while these different types of slavery were both equally wrong, the slavery that we tend to think of when we hear that word is chattel slavery. The removal of black men and women from their homes in Africa to serve in the New World or in Europe. There was no dignity in this. There was no way, zero ways to earn your freedom. There was no hope whatsoever for a slave other than to hope that your master was kind this is certainly more heinous and sinister because it predicates on treating image-bearing humans as evil and untamed monsters. There's some things I could read if I had time that would just blow your mind as to how they thought of, uh, of black people from, from Africa. But what made it even more wicked was how slave masters would take these passages that were meant to be subversive in a good way for the culture and they would use it to coerce their slaves into behaving, including the passage from today. Um, There's a book that I've been reading by Esau McCauley. He's a a professor at Wheaton College. It's a book called Reading Black. It's quite a provocative title. And he recounts the story of an African-American theologian and civil rights activist uh, named Howard Thurman. And Howard Thurman would read his Bible to, uh, to his grandmother, who was a slave. And often, his grandmother would ask him to skip certain sections of the Bible. And finally, he worked up the courage and asked, why, why do you want me to skip this section? And so I'm going to read this little section here. It'll be on the screen here as well. So, during the days of slavery, she said, the master's minister would occasionally hold services for the slaves. Old man McGee was so mean that he would not let a Negro minister preach to his slaves. Always the white minister would use as his text something from Paul. At least three or four times a year, he used it as a text. Slaves, be obedient to them that are your masters as unto Christ. Notice that they skipped like the other part about masters. Then he would go on about how it was God's will that we were slaves and how if we were good and happy slaves, God would bless us. I promised my maker that if I ever learned to read and if freedom ever came, I would not read that part of the Bible. I don't know about you, but that is that's hard to read. That's challenging. It's, it's challenging to grapple with the implications of these sorts of passages for those for whom slavery is a part of their heritage. So now these passages have this difficult and compounded meaning the lens in which we view these passages has been tainted. So if Paul elsewhere condemns slave traders and encourages slaves to seek their freedom, why doesn't he encourage slaves to obey their masters? Or sorry, why does he do that? And why doesn't he speak out against the system? Why doesn't he encourage the dismantling of the entire thing? And again, this is a natural question that we should ask. And especially as we read this text this morning, it's a question that we ought to work with. I think it's fair to say, though, that Paul looked at this new sect of Christianity, this new sect of of religion that was popping up in the Roman world, this tiny group of Christ followers uh, amongst a sea of other pagan cultural religious belief, and he thought to himself, this is a tiny little movement that at this point was just a handful of people, really. How could this tiny little sect of uh, Christians Change this massive, sprawling economic system. So instead, he looked within the system and thought, how can we subvert it in some way to make people more into the image of Jesus? And in fact, I think he looks to the example of Jesus as someone who was unfairly treated and maligned and eventually beaten and murdered. What happened to Jesus was in every way, by every metric, it was unjust. And so Paul looks at Jesus as our answer, as the way to combat this evil system, to encourage both slave and master toward christ like this. And I think there was actually a part of Paul that hoped as the slave master, in the case of Philemon and Onesimus, I, there was a part of Paul that hoped that as he encouraged the masters toward Christ-likeness, that they would actually release their slaves. What an incredible thing that would have been. So where do we go with this? So this, this morning, I don't want to just fill your head with a bunch of information, although I do believe that this is really important stuff. This is really uh, so that we can have conversations amongst each other, amongst Christians, amongst skeptics and atheists, so that we know how to address the issue of Christians and slavery. But what I want us to think about now is how this plays out now. What does this actually look like in the 21st century? And our practical takeaways really center on these three words power, authority, and justice. Power, authority, and justice. The parent and child relationship is a little bit easier, so um, we're going to just start there very briefly. Parents, and especially fathers, understand the power and the authority that you have not only over your young ones, but also your adult children. You have such a unique opportunity to show your children how the world works, how to live, how to love, how to show them a picture of Jesus. So do not exasperate them, as Paul says. Do not coerce them or provoke them to anger. So many of you, I know because I've seen this, so many of you are striving towards showing the sacrificial love of Jesus. I want you to keep going in that. Even when you don't receive it back, keep going. Don't stop. Children, honoring our parents and, their, and the parental figures in our lives will pay dividends in our lives. As we honor and respect others, We receive back honor and respect, and that's the language I often actually use around our church here as we talk about some of our cultural divides, some of the things that make us different. We all have lots of different preferences and things that we would love to see in our church community, and I often use the language of honor because um, the reality is we have a really unique opportunity here as a multi-generational church to display sacrificial love and honor to one another as the family of Christ. That means that the older generation is going to want to see the church thrive so in time, as appropriate, they're going to lay down some of their preferences. But it also, in turn, means that our younger generation needs to show deference at times. That's part of the reason why, and I thought this is a beautiful picture behind me as the band was playing, of having several generations all on stage together singing a hymn. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons why I choose each week that we have at least one hymn in some form or another um, as a way of saying we want to honor each other That's really, really important. Imagine a family lived like that. I mean, the family of Christ struggles to live like that, but I think we actually do pretty well most of the time. But imagine a family unit kind of working in this way. It's a beautiful pe- picture of Jesus. To our elder generation and to parents, wield your authority to lay down your life. And as it goes in this upside-down kingdom of God, As we lay down our lives, we gain life in some ways, this beautiful, profound mystery. Now, on to the slave and master portion of our passage, which is a little bit more challenging in terms of practical implications. We might have heard otherwise, but our bent is still to see slavery as something from a bygone era, something that we get to talk about as some past evil that we should never repeat again. But, as I'm sure many of us are aware of, there are still millions and millions of people enslaved around the world today. And I want us to see that in some way or another, us here in the affluent West, that we run the risk, and I say this with trepidation and difficulty, that we run the risk of acting as an unseen slave master, through our actions, and through our inactions. It's important for us to be aware of our power. It is important also to see the injustice around us and use our power to address it, that we are not helpless agents. We can do something about the evils in the world around us. This means Things like this, and these are just a few examples among many. This means examining things like our clothing choices. Will we refuse to buy from companies that we know are harming children in dangerous conditions overseas? Or will we turn a blind eye? This means examining our viewing choices. Will we engage in viewing pornography when we know that there are young women and even children, image-bearing young women and children who are abused and coerced and live in daily abject terror? There are stories that would break the coldest of hearts that have surfaced, that I've seen lately, of just the abuses that have gone on in this realm. Global slavery has a lot to do with what and how we consume. When you cut off demand, you remove the need for more child labor or forced prostitution or whatever it is, even in our own continent. You know, I love my Amazon prime account. Um, because of the free shipping and TV shows and all that kind of stuff. But here's a wild fact, just throwing this out there. Here's a wild fact. Jeff Bezos, who's the CEO of Amazon, he could give every single one of his employees a check today for $100,000. And he would still, A, be the richest man on earth. And he would have just as much money as he did seven months ago pre-pandemic. And to top it off, over 20,000 employees of Amazon warehouses and deliverers caught gotten COVID-19 over the past seven months with minimal health benefits or sick days due to poor working conditions. These are the sorts of unjust systems that need to be corrected. And Paul, in our passage, he gives us the tools to address it. He says, you are the ones in authority. You're the ones buying the stuff. How are you contributing to this? And I am examining that in my own life. So maybe this week what you need to do is take an account of all of the things in your life, all the things that we've consumed, everything from our food to our online purchases to the clothing that we're wearing to how we're spending our money and examining all of it and exploring whether or not we are directly or indirectly contributing to modern day slavery. And I recognize this is a hard thing to grapple with because it means looking into inside and, and you know looking at what's been comfortable for us for so long and addressing it. And that's messy and unfortunate. But this is what it looks like to recognize our power, to recognize our authority, and to seek justice, which is near to the heart of God. So as we celebrate Thanksgiving this weekend, we turn our attention today to thankfulness for the freedom that we have in Jesus. Amen? We are thankful for the freedom from sin because of the work um, that happened on the cross and in the empty tomb. We are thankful for a free society where we can worship, whether distantly or in person. We are thankful for a family and church family, for the opportunities we have to show sacrificial love to one another. And we are thankful to learn from history today so that we can live differently now. So may we never take that freedom for granted. May we use it for the purposes of bringing the gospel message of Jesus, the justice of God the Father, and the sustaining, miraculous, powerful work of the Holy Spirit to our city, to our nation, and to our world. Let's pray. Dear God, we are grateful for so much in this season. And Lord, would we be grateful for our freedom, but may we not use our freedom to harm others may we always do it to, uh, to to just cause the flourishing of our world so Lord would you be with us as we go about celebrating with family even in a very different climate right now God would you give us hearts of gratitude would you give us hearts to seek justice in the world around us may we live in in light of all that we have heard this morning, even the difficult truths. We pray this in your name. Amen.